still the excitement in the air. Amen. If you weren't with us Thursday and Friday, uh, we had Michael Perkins come in, who lives in Tennessee. We were friends from Kentucky, and uh, just being in ministry, supporting one another, and, and praying for one another, and we had a wonderful service. And, uh, you know, there's so much I could say and, you know, go off on another subject altogether, but uh, continue to pray that we have revival in our lives, um, because it starts with us as individuals, as a church, and it grows. And some of you may be following the story that's going on in Asbury in Kentucky. Uh, just a revival has taken place. It's just been going on for days. Be praying that that continues and spreads, that lives are transformed. There's just been these moments in time where God poured out His Spirit, and it radically changed the culture. Uh, it changes things. There's a movement toward God. Uh, and, and it is a battle, to be honest. This is spiritual um, as we see these things happening. Um, today, as we begin, I just want to share, many of you know or have heard of C.S. Lewis. He is the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, much more than the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've not read these, I love them. The older I get, the more I love them, even though they were written for children. And my favorite book of the seven has come to be The Last Battle. I, I love the book because it, it's a portrait of what we are facing in our days. Uh, of course, C.S. Lewis wrote so many other books, but this one, this one is very meaningful to me. And the story begins with an ape. Obviously, there's animals and other creatures in the realm of Narnia, but the story begins with an ape named Shift and a donkey named Puzzle. And they find down the river is flowing the carcass of a lion. And Shift, the ape, comes up with an idea. Let's get this, this carcass, this lion, and let's turn it into a lion suit. And the donkey puzzle, you can wear it, and we can pretend that we are Aslan. Aslan is the lion, the, the portrait of Jesus Christ and the stories of Narnia. And ultimately, what they're creating is an antichrist, an anti-Aslan in the world of Narnia. And Shift would be his false prophet. Turning to chapter 2 in the story, it shows a time of confusion, the the, the speaking on behalf of Aslan has already begun to happen. The false Aslan begins, uh, begins giving orders, and, and we see the, the bad news comes to the king, King Tyrion, and the warrior unicorn featured here on the cover of the book. Uh, his name is Jewel. But they come, and the word is spread that there's confusion, there's deception. There's wicked things happening in the world of Narnia. And it says in the book this, you can see it here, the king and the unicorn stared at one another and both looked more frightened than they had ever been in any battle. Aslan, said the king at last in a very low voice, could it be true? Um, basically, could he be ordering these things that we're hearing about? The unicorn says, unless they have all done something dreadfully wrong, basically it means that Aslan could be judging those who are living in sin. It is possible, says the king. I don't know, said Jewel miserably. He is not a tame lion that is speaking to the fact that we cannot control Aslan. He decides what he wants to do. Well, said the king at last, we must go on and take the adventure that comes to us. It is the only thing left for us to do, sire, said the unicorn. And... Seeing this, in all the years and being in ministry and early on, I realized that church is a battlefield. 
Ministry is warfare. Following Jesus Christ is a battle. And church, I believe this is my position. There are people all over the place in their, their eschatology, but I believe because based on the words of Paul that we are in the last times. Uh, and that's why I, this book is so meaningful to me. This is that we are living in the last battle. And the point is, is are we prepared? Um, many today, I would say, are unprepared and ill-equipped for the, these battles that are coming from all sides. But here's the deal. The Bible speaks about it. It is to be expected. Uh, we are to be prepared for it. We have to take the adventure that has come our way, as they say here. It is our battle. This is the fight for our time. Everything that we complain about that's going on in the world and entertainment and in the news, this is our battle. It's not for them. It is the church's job to share the gospel. It is the church's job to speak to the issues. Uh, we have become very fearful and hide from dealing with the issues. I, I was just thinking about this nasty business that happened at the Grammys this week, a satanic ritual that people watched and sang, and young people were listening to this horrible music. But at the same time, I see God moving at Asbury. At one end, people worshiping Satan. On the other end, God is pouring out His Spirit and we can see revival. And this is a battle for us. And we have to stand our ground in these things, church. Paul speaks to these issues in the, the text that Mary uh, read earlier from Acts chapter 20. We went through Acts. Paul's in Ephesus. When he came there, it was a spiritual battle. They're casting out demons. They see demonic forces. There's idolatry. Uh, there's witchcraft. People turn to Jesus Christ and they burn their witchcraft books. I mean, God was moving and now Paul is telling the church, it is time for me to leave. But what is going to happen when I leave? That Satan is going to bring up fierce wolves within the church. And, and you know, it, it doesn't say from the outside. And this is where we've been very mistaken in seeing persecution. There is government persecution. But government persecution has never stopped the church. It's never, even though people have been killed and persecuted, the church flourishes when there's persecution from the outside. But when there's deception from within, it corrupts the church. There is hindrance from Satan and false teachers. What are the fierce wolves? There are false, false teachers and false Christians that come up within the church. And Paul is saying, be alert. Um, I, we, we are to take care of the flock. We're to care for one another. We don't want to see people get carried away by false teachings or whatever it may be in the world. A large portion of the New Testament deals with this battle. But today, even though I wanted to spend some time in Acts, we are going to start with the book of Jude. And Jude here is this, this one-page letter um, from Jude, the brother of James, the brothers of Jesus, right before the book of Revelation. There's an introduction here in 1 and 2, and then in verse 3. I want you to see what Jude says. And I recommend it. It's an easy letter to read. It's not hard to read. It is basically one page. You don't even say chapter 1, verse 2. You just say Jude 3 through 5. That's what we see here. Beloved, he says, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, about the things of the faith to encourage you in following the Lord, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Apagonizamai. 
contend. Now, part of that word is from the word we use when Jesus says, strive to enter in. Um, Agonizomai. Here it is, apagonizomai. To fight, to get physical. There is a battle here. It actually means a struggle that you are to struggle for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I love that. I want to spend time there. I don't have time today. Once for all delivered. It's not changing. What was given to the apostles was given to the early fathers, was passed on to the church, to the next church, to the next church, to the next church. Christianity is the same faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. And here it is. For certain men... Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now, what that means is when you choose to turn against God and war against his church, you are designated for the wrath that is coming. You were not in the path of the train, but now you are in the path of the train. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and what do they do? They deny our only master and Lord, Kyrios, Jesus, 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 and Christos, Christ here. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, this is the stuff that blows my mind in the New Testament. Do we need reminders as Christians? Should we not already know the gospel? Should we not already know what it means to follow Jesus Christ? But time and time again, you're going to find in the New Testament that there are reminders for us because we are forgetful. Now, I want to remind you, although you once already knew these things, that Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt or out of the land of Egypt. This is, this is profound here. We're going to get into this today. Who saved the people out of Egypt? Jesus. And afterward, man, I'm jumping ahead. This is like a, a few pages over. And afterward, also destroyed those who did not believe. Let's pray together today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words We thank you for the moving of your Holy Spirit. And we pray today that we just bend as we learned this week. That we bend our hearts before you. That we bend our wills to your will. That we are just sold out, sanctified, surrendered saints to your mission in the world, your calling. I pray that we are becoming the disciples you want us to be, that we are answering the call and doing the work you've called us to. We pray that you bless your words. And we already know, Lord, as they go forward, they do not return void. But we pray that they fall on good ground today, that we may grow, (laughs) that we may give you glory, that we may produce fruit as we follow you. Bless your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church, there's a battle being waged, and Jude tells us here, We have to contend for this faith that has been once for all passed on to the saints. Again, it does not change. We are warring to keep things the same in theology. The early uh, creeds and these meetings and councils, when they got together, they weren't getting together to say, how can we do things more innovatively? They actually, the councils came together to decide, what is it we believe and how can we maintain this? In the theology that we believe. Now, I believe you can do whatever you want in ministry and trying to win people to Jesus Christ. The theology of Jesus Christ does not change. Now, this battle that we are facing, church, is being fought on all sides. 
It's fault in the home, the public square, the government, the media, entertainment, the universities. Uh, Satan is even working through his servants. He has infiltrated churches. And the primary battle that we are going to see is the battle to change who Jesus Christ is and his teachings that have been passed down. The teachings of Jesus Christ, we do not get to change them. God did not give us the Bible to change it. He gave us the Bible that it would change us. Amen? We do not get to change the things of Jesus Christ and His Word. If you commit to Jesus and His teachings, you're going to face opposition. You're going to be called intolerant. You're going to be called unloving. And I want to prepare you for a few things so you can remain faithful, that you can live fruitful as you follow Jesus in the battle. The primary battle we are fighting in Christianity is the, the battle for the nature of Jesus Christ. So let's look at number one together. I want you to see this again. The real Christ. The true Jesus. Stripped away from all the made-up things today. We come to the Scriptures. We look at the apostolic revelation that has been passed down. Now any teaching about Jesus that is not from the apostolic revelation is imagination and it's made up. So here we see what Jude has to say about Jesus. And he's saying what happens in the church, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, that is to say that you can be a Christian and live a sensual lifestyle. I mean, there's always these two things you're fighting. Religiosity, where you, legalism, where people say you have to keep the law to be saved and we put a bunch of rules on top of people and force them down their throat before they really believe and can grow. The other end, and becomes religious and dead. The other end is perversion. There's liberty to live in sin. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is to say, their lifestyle denies Jesus. And they are denying Jesus in their theology. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It is interesting here that Jude, as he's telling us to apaganizomai, to contend for the faith, does not go into points in a list of doctrines that you have to maintain. What he deals with is the fact that false teachers have come in, and then he goes into the fact of who Jesus really is. So the battle is, hey, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of list of things and rules you have to keep and morality matters, but the theology of Jesus really matters. If you don't get Jesus right, how can you have salvation? And, and that's what he's trying to tell us here. So he, he points out the nature of Jesus Christ because they are denying our only master and Lord Jesus. Here it is, church. People love Jesus until you define him by the scriptures. I love that Jesus guy... But the guy with flaming eyes in the book of Revelation that's going to judge the world, I don't know about him. Uh, and that's really what we are seeing today. They are fine with him being some religious leader among other religions of the world. Some wise sage or a good moral teacher, you may have heard that before. But a, a mere good moral teacher cannot save you from your sins. Because he has fallen as well. Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who went to the cross to take away our sins. To lower him into just some mere good moral teacher flies in the face of the, ver the very incarnation that we believe as Christians that we celebrate every year around Christmas. A child is born of Mary. 
A son is given by God. We have the hypostatic union. It is the man Christ. He is fully God. He is fully man. And I want to get into some of his humanity next week. But today we are dealing with his deity. So the fight that we are fighting, this battle, is to define Jesus by the scriptures and how the apostles defined and saw Jesus Christ. I mean, they were in awe at times because they're walking with a human. If you've watched The Chosen, you're like in awe of his humanity. Because you do see something special about him in the scriptures. And you're like, wow. They were in awe when people fell and worshipped him. You can't, you're not supposed to worship people. They already knew that. He's healing people. He's healing the blind. He's raising people from the dead. This Jesus stopped a storm in front of the disciples. A man came to him and sent his servants and said, Actually, uh, Jesus, my kid, a servant is sick. You don't even have to come. Because I know how this works. Because if you're the sovereign Lord, all you have to do is speak it and it will happen. He didn't even have to show up. He has power over time and space and matter. This is the Lord, Jesus Christ. He is God. In the Bible, he, Jesus is forgiving sins. Who can forgive sins but God? Again, he, he is worshipped. Uh, the disciples called him the Messiah. They called him Lord. They called him God. Um, Jesus went to the cross for us. He has died for our sins. He was resurrected. Now, I don't know about you, and I've shared this a lot, but if I was, I don't know how you could follow Buddha. He's already dead. Like, so you're getting a teaching that's passed down after his death. And then you have all these other guys people are following that are still in the grave. I mean, already from the beginning, our guy rose. <laughs> I mean, not only did he claim to be God, he was like, you know what? Whoop, you know, the father raised Jesus up. He moves. Our God is alive. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's alive. He's in heaven. This is who we follow. Here it is. The apostle Paul tells us this. This is throughout the New Testament. Just reading through the book of John, it is it's reoccurring that Jesus is God. But Paul tells us here in Col Colossians chapter 1 here, 15 through 16, you find it in Hebrews. You find it in all these beginnings. He is the image of the invisible God. So we believe God to be spirit. Jesus said that in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Uh, we worship him in spirit of truth because God is spirit. I think when we get to heaven, we will not see God the Father because he is spirit. We will see Jesus with our resurrected eyes because he has a bodily form. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now, this is where false religions get hung up. They said, doesn't it say here that he was born? Um, that is to say that he has the rights and privileges of the firstborn son who would inherit the sovereign rule. And obviously Jesus was born physically by the woman, but not born just merely as a man. For by him all things were created. This is not just a good moral teacher. Whoever this guy is, somehow he was in the beginning and created all things. I mean, Paul is letting it out here and letting us know, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So not only the earth that we see, the heavens... Visible and invisible, the things that you see and the elements that they couldn't even see yet because they didn't have a microscope yet. But they go ahead and say all the things that you can't see and you know there's some kind of science behind that. God made those things. Whether thrones or dominions or rule, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That means for his glory. Everything that you see that was created in the world. Now, I have to be careful there because I had one of my daughters years ago. 
who was holding a Barbie and was talking to me and said, Dad, God made everything, right? I said, yes, he's the creator of all things. Why does my Barbie say made in China? (laughs) And I had to say, well, God made all the elements that we have and we can create things from those things. But kids kind of hit you with these random kind of questions along the way. But he is the sovereign God and creator. The early Christians committed to Jesus because he was the Lord. Um, Because they saw his nature, even human and God. Uh, And this is what the apostles taught. This is what's been passed down. Now let's look back here at the verses 4 and 5 of Jude. Our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I write to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now do not miss this. One of the reasons I use the ESV because it translates certain things a certain way, and I prefer that. Some of you, uh, when the NIV came, it was a fresh, new translation. Everybody wanted it. Uh, it took some portions out, and it's mixed some things up. There's st- it's still a good translation. Uh, you're in good company if you have an NIV. If you have an ESV, you're in better company here. So in verse 4, in verse 4, he writes, Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here the Greek word is kurios. Um, and it's always associated, for the most part, with Jesus in the New Testament. Kurios. Here, actually, it says... Master and Lord, Kyrios, Jesus, Jesus, Christos, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 5 in the ESV, where we see Jesus, which is the Greek word Jesus, some English translations just use Kyrios. The reason I like the ESV, because I think this book, it's like it just settles the matter. It reminds you who Jesus really is. So it's not just Lord here, and we assume that may be some other God or this Old Testament God. The reason the ESV translates it here, Jesus, is that most of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts have Jesus. That it was Jesus who delivered the Hebrew people from Egypt. You're getting a New Testament reminder that God, Jesus, was moving in the Old Testament. Now, that is revelation, and we need to hear it because we've separated these gods. There's this mean, judgmental God in the Old Testament. And there's this new hippie dude named Jesus, and he kind of likes everybody. It doesn't matter if you smoke weed or live in sin, you're okay with him, kind of a thing. But we have to unite them because the God of the Old Testament is the same as Jesus, and Jesus is the same as the God of the Old Testament. The entire point is that Jesus is Lord and God, and we have to see him as such. When you, even if you get in a debate about someone and what they believe about Jesus, you need to go ahead and ask, do you believe Jesus is God? Because if he's not, he's not really going to... Who are you really calling on to save you? Some good moral teacher? Because he can't. And if he's a good moral teacher, he's still in the grave. The one we believe in is the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the grave, who is the almighty God for us. The first creed... Here's the question, guys, at this point. Is he the Lord of your life? Has he saved you? You know the early creeds we want to learn, the Apostles' Creeds and the Nicene Creeds, and I love these creeds. You want to know what the first creed was? Jesus is Lord. How did I know somebody was a Christian? They confessed Jesus as Lord. Now, why is this important? Because this is dangerous in the Roman colonies because they considered Caesar as Lord. But now they see Caesar's just a man. 
Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is Lord. I've committed my life to him. He has saved me. I'm willing to die for him. Even Thomas fell on his face, or he actually just confesses when he sees Jesus resurrected. My Lord and my God, my curios and my theos. You are my God. That would be heresy if he was just a good moral teacher. But he is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is God who saves us. The Bible doesn't teach us that those who call upon a good moral teacher shall be saved. It tells us that those who call upon the name of the curios, the Lord, shall be saved. Now, there's false teachings that have crept into Christianity who have tried to, these false teachers have tried to redefine Jesus into something he is not. He was not merely a man, even though he was man and God. He wasn't just a man who went about doing nice things and saying wise things. He is God. Many in this present day Christianity have um, missed this fundamental theological reality. Jesus is God. That is what we celebrate at the resurrection. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, who's come into the world. In church, God is good. He is loving. He is holy. He wants to save you. But I want you to know today that He is also a judge. We've removed judgment from this Jesus. We've removed His superiority in that He is going to judge the world Uh, Jude 5 again, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew this. Now, I don't believe everybody once fully knew it. I believe they once fully knew it at that time. Today, we have to remind people that you need to know it. Then we can say we once fully knew it. That Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, take note here. This is where things get serious. Jesus was somehow, again, in the past. Now, that alone says something. How is Jesus, if he's just some sage, some wise religious leader, a good moral teacher, how did he save the people out of Egypt? That alone radically changes our thinking about who Jesus is. Jesus saved people here, but I want you to see also, this is where we stop in modern Christianity, or postmodern Christianity, that Jesus also destroyed those who did not believe. And we're building a case here. Jesus is the Lord. He is deliverer, he is savior, but he also judges. And this is where we need to get right with Jesus. We've come to him as as a nice guy who forgives, who went to the cross. This guy kind of died for me. We kind of believe that he rose again. He might come again. But church, his role is also judged. And it says in John chapter 3, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. But there is going to be a time of judgment, and judgment is given to the Son. Now, here's the issue. Again, postmodern Christianity tries to separate our relationship with God from the righteous expectations of God. And thus, Americanized, and this is what I would say here, we have paganized Christianity and separated Jesus from his his role as God, his deity, and ultimately the Trinity. We are Trinitarian Christians. There is Father, there is Son, there is Spirit, the Holy Spirit. They are all one. They are all God revealed to us in three persons. You find this in the Scriptures. This is what they hammered out early in Christianity with the Nicene Creed. We went over that a few years ago. They are the same substance. They are the... uh, 
homoousion, I believe, is what it is. The same spirit, the spirit is the same as the, the, the son. The son is the same as the father, the same. They are the same. At creation, at creation, Jesus was there. If he is creator of all things, that puts him way back, a long way back, that all things were made by him. And I, I love that. John chapter 1, go, go back to that. We beheld his glory. <laughs> um, when the flood happened, this is where we really get mixed up, and we have to be careful here, because we assume Jesus was not involved in the flood. That was the mean Old Testament God. Guess who was present when the decision was made by the Godhead Trinity to judge the earth? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What has happened is when Jesus became flesh, it's the incarnation, but he already existed. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Lagos. The Lagos was Theos. He already was in the beginning. He already existed because he is God. Jesus was part of the divine decision to judge the earth. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Jesus was part of the Godhead Trinity that decided to destroy those cities. This was not some other god. This was not some angry pagan god. In fact, the more I read the Old Testament and the New Testament, I realize how loving God is and how patient he is. How patient he was with Nineveh. You know, we always talk about the story of Jonah and how Nineveh, the people, repented and turned to Jesus, and there was a revival there. 400 years later, God destroyed Nineveh because they turned back. He destroyed the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah because they would not come to him, though they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Abraham is pleading for them, pleading, God, if we can just find 50, 40, 30, down to 10, if we can just find a few righteous, and all God could find was one. They were completely apostates. They had been torn and, and living away from God, and they made the decision to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. People living in sin are looking for loopholes today, trying to find a way to be a Christian and hold on to their sin and avoid the consequences. And this is the thing. You must know who this Jesus is. He loves you. He has made every opportunity for you to believe in Him, to be saved, that you may be under the blood. If you choose to reject the, the judgment that was on Jesus Christ, his death for you, then there's nothing left for God but that judgment to come upon you. You either accept what happened to Jesus or it comes on you. Now, this is not a message on hell, but there's only a, a one other option. It is Jesus in his glory and his heaven, or it is an eternity away from God. There's a new argument today. <clears throat> In Christianity, there's one thing I was writing in my notes this week. You ever heard people say they're a red-letter Christian? I don't know why they ever started that. I'm gonna, we're going to try to figure out which words were actually by Jesus and turn those red. And you know what the problem is with that? Because if Jesus existed in the Old Testament, we're writing about the old, in the Old Testament, the black letters are Jesus as well. It's really it's a, an affront on Jesus' deity. It's not just, you know, the Gospels have some words of Jesus. We'll paint those red, and I'm only going to listen to those words and no other of his words. And here it is. A new argument today that has entered into our churches is that Jesus never talked about homosexuality. If Jesus existed in the Old Testament, and he's speaking through the apostles, 
he dealt with homosexuality in the scriptures. But he did speak to these matters. And I want you to see these today. Jesus did speak. Now, people say that so they can get a pass. I'm a red-letter Christian, and Jesus never mentions homosexuality, uh, so I can continue to live the way I want to. That's not even theology. That's not following Jesus. That's looking for a past. Um, Jesus did speak to immorality. Pornaya covers all the sins when Jesus uses that word. Um, Jesus affirms marriage. In fact, let's think about this. Jesus, you're going to see in a few moments, Jesus affirmed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not affirm the lifestyle. And those are things we have to consider today. So he affirms marriage, that there's male and female from the beginning. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the days of Noah. We don't have all these verses. I'm going to let you see some of these here. And affirmed the Old Testament teachings. But Jesus says, unless you believe the prophets and Moses, you will not believe me. So we have to take the Old Testament with them. So Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town that rejects me in the present. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for us if we, we reject this. Now what is Jesus saying here? What happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus affirms what happened. In fact, there's going to be a worse thing if you reject his gospel. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what, church? Not this 50 other genders. Always. Jesus is affirming the reality of the creation of male and female. Male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father. There's a message there in itself. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. Jesus didn't say this, this guy and another guy and another guy, or this woman and all these other things. I, I remember reading a story about a thruple. Three guys adopted a boy, and they had all their names put on the birth certificate, and they were celebrating this great movement of three men being together, a thruple. The reminder is, that is not right in the eyes of God. From the beginning, you've heard, male and female, this was what happened. The man leaves, clings to his wife, they become one. This is what God has given to us. And let's add here, let no man separate this reality. Matthew 9, 19, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, pornaya, which is a dump word for all the evil, perverted things that people do, homosexuality, fornication, all these things outside of marriage and marries another, they commit adultery. He's given us the order of marriage again. John chapter 5, here I want you to see this. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. What was written in the Old Testament matters. What God said about marriage and immorality and all these things, that you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So what has happened is we're coming to Jesus and we're trying to create him into somebody else and removing the Old Testament from him. And Jesus tells us himself, the Old Testament matters and everything that was written about me. And here it is. I'm going to ask Jay to come as we prepare to close. I, um, this message was from a writing I'm putting together called Battlefield Church. And it was 10 pages. Now normally on a Sunday I preach about five pages. And I got it down to seven pages. And, uh, and here we are, um, six pages, with a lot more to talk about here.
But what I want you to see is, in all of this, we see that Jesus affirms holy marriage the way that it was from creation. He refers to male and female. To say that Jesus never spoke about these issues is wrong. Um, Jesus never spoke about incest. Does that mean incest is right? There's a lot of things that Jesus didn't necessarily talk about that were mentioned in the Old Testament. And he said, those teachings matter, and I affirm those teachings. Um, We have to quit trying to redefine Jesus into someone who accepts our sin. And we need to start repenting from our sin. I want people to experience God. I want people to believe in Jesus Christ. I want people to be saved. But you have to come the way of Jesus. We have to come the way of what we've been taught about Jesus. Again, John here, John chapter 5. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And what are we to do? We are to call upon him and call him Lord. Jesus, the early Christians again, Jesus is what? He is Lord. So as we close today, church, the calling is, have you called upon the name of Jesus, the Kyrios, the Lord, who is God and the only one able to save you from your sins? Now, some of you may already believe, but you needed to be edified in the reality of what we believe as Christians, because we've been pounded on and said we're intolerant and unloving. We have a message to and it is the true Jesus, the real Jesus, and that he is loving and gracious and kind and he wants to save you, but he is also just.